Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Keepman. And today, ladies and gents, we are going to talk about advice. Advice, they say, is the only commodity with more in supply than demand. You know, they ask, we wonder how one can succeed. We live in a wonderful community with many beautiful organizations, lots of wonderful people. And I'm not going to go listing all the beautiful qualities of all the organizations out here, but certainly I can talk a little bit here about Chabad and Chabad Seniors programs and um, some other wonderful organizations that do great work. And one of those aspects is the here at Chabad Seniors, and certainly before COVID and now that we're back in person, please God, is one of the good ways you can help yourself is by helping others. I've certainly found that in my own experience in life, and I certainly encourage others to try that out for yourselves. When you help others, it uplifts you too. So we have had a program here in the past where many of the seniors served as mentors to inspire, to influence, to help others, to uplift others. And I know that OrtJet does this and other organizations as well. People ask, what's the secret to success? And it's a question that many, many people ask. In all areas of life, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in so many other areas. Now, of course, there are many, there are many, many answers out there, many components to this ever-present question. But one recurring theme that we find across the different disciplines is the value of having a mentor. And actually, it's a Mishnah that says, every person should have a mentor, to acquire friendship. So mentorship, when it's important that every person have a mentor, but also you mentor others too. So today, I think I'm going to talk more on the flip side of why it's important to have a mentor. But I think it's so important. By the way, there's an article published, and I could send it out to anyone who would like. If anyone asks, just send me a WhatsApp. An article that was published yesterday talking about the best way to become happier is to bring happiness to others. So I would say, not only do we all need mentors, but we should also serve as mentors. The Rebbe would remind us, if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. They say 80% of CEOs who were polled stated that they have mentors. And there's data from many different sources, from one called the Emerging Workforce Study that showed that 30, 35% of employees who don't receive regular mentoring plan to look for another job within 12 months. It's important that people have mentorship. There's other statistics, I won't go through all of them now. They say 59% of mentored teenagers earn better grades. 27% of mentored youth are less likely to begin using substances, alcohol, drugs, other problems. 52% of mentored youth are less likely to skip school. And one thing we've encouraged most of our seniors is when you mentor, when you take somebody under your wings, remember the iPad training program we used to do before COVID, where the youngsters came and taught the seniors how to use iPads, how to use modern technology. We gave them a name, their title was Tech Tutors, but many of the seniors then adopted some of the youth and taught them and helped them with their homework, assisted them with other matters, you know, with, with mathematics, with whatever it was that they could assist with. Youth with mentors have increased the likelihood of going to college, better attitude towards school, 
increased social and emotional development. And most importantly for all is the improved self-esteem. So we understand the significance, the importance of having a mentor. There was a report that talks about, I think it's called the mentoring effect. And it discusses and analyzes this very topic. And the survey found that mentored youth set higher educational goals and are more likely to, whether it's going to college or just in general having a more positive outlook on life. So you look at the youth at risk that they talk about, oftentimes they are disconnected. If they were embraced, if they were mentored, they would have a better chance at succeeding. You look at young entrepreneurs, having someone hold their hand through moments of doubt or failure can be so invaluable. Having someone to guide them through the holes of corporate power or to critique them for the naivete, that can often be the difference, at least from a pragmatic standpoint, Obviously, God runs the world, so we understand that that ultimately the steps of man are planted by God. But that could be the, the, the difference between success and failure. So let me ask you, how many of you have mentors in your life? And how many of you are mentoring others in your life? If you don't have a mentor, would you like to have one? Or have you ever thought about having a mentor? What are you looking for in a mentor? Would that mentor help you in whatever capacity? I think whether you're young or old, you could have a mentor. Imagine you have a mentor who could guide you through the steps of aging gracefully. What about spiritually having a mentor? Somebody who could guide you through your spiritual development and growth. What about financially? One of the things I used to bring in was people to talk about various topics and we'll certainly reinstate that, please God, at Chabad House one of these days. We're, they, and, and many of our evening Zooms have exactly that. People come in from various companies and organizations and professionals who can help guide us through the struggles, the challenges. I don't know everything about finances, but if I had a mentor who could guide me through what's the best way to manage my finances, and for that, I need to give a shout out to my friend Gary, who has a success school that helps people to learn about money. If you don't know how to use money, but through everything. If you have a nutritionist, that's a mentor who could help you through your nutrition. And that, I think, is an important aspect. And of course, we're going to learn about that in our Parsha this week, the portion of Yisro. Because our Parsha begins with the story of Yisro. Yisro is the father-in-law of Moshe. And he starts off, he travels from his home in Midian to visit the site of the Jewish encampment in the desert. And our parsha tells us, it starts off with the words, Vayava Yisra, that Yisra came, he was the father-in-law of Moshe, came with his whole entire family, and he visits the Jewish people. And Yisra, Moshe, father-in-law, son-in-law, they're spending some time together, evening catching up having maybe a nice bride, because the Torah says they're offering, offering sacrifices to God. So obviously they're, they're, they're good bonding time. They're dining together with all the leaders. And a while later in the Parsha, the Torah is given to the Jewish people. The most momentous occasion in all of our history, where God gives us the Torah at Mount Sinai, is what happens in our Parsha. And after this dramatic major event, the Jewish people 
What did we do? 40 days later, we betrayed God. We betrayed Moshe. We sinned with the golden calf. And Moshe then, of course, pleaded with God for mercy on our behalf. And that's how we get Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where God forgave the Jewish people. And on that day, Moshe comes down, he descends the mountain with the second tablets, and it's time for the Jewish people to settle in the post-Torah routine. What happens the next day? Yisra, who's visiting the Jewish people, he's there, and he is puzzled by what he sees. What happens? If you read the verses in our parsha, it says, Vayihim Macharas came about the next day. The Moshe is judging the people. That was part of Moshe's position. That Moshe would judge, would counsel the Jewish people. And Yisra is astonished to see that his son-in-law is spending his, literally his entire day judging the people, teaching them the Torah's laws. There are millions of people, three million Jews who left Egypt. And all these issues, litigations, and and personal matters that the people have to deal with, and who's the one who's leading them through this all, none other than Moshe Rabbeinu himself. So in true, typical father-in-lawly fashion, Moshe tells us, uh, Yisra tells us, son-in-law, listen, Baki, you're not doing this right. And he gives him free advice, like I said before. Advice is the only commodity with more in supply than demand. And he tells him, as you can read in our parsha this week, it's not right what you're doing. And he devises a whole plan. And he tells Moshe how you have to manage and delegate and, and get the people out there and have, you know, judges below you and different systems, a whole system of courts, which actually the global judicial systems are mostly designed in exactly this manner that Yisra suggests, from a Supreme Court to municipal courts, from to civil courts and family courts and tort, and, and all the different laws, everything is Yisra's advice. And Moshe, to his everlasting credit, he doesn't bat an eyelash. He actually follows his father-in-law's advice. He does exactly what his father-in-law recommends. He sets up the, the system that his father-in-law suggested. As the Torah says, Moshe obeyed his father-in-law's advice and did exactly what his father-in-law said. Now, there was no need to bother Moshe from this point onward. Every time you have uh, concerns, you have you know two people get into a fight over something, there's a litigation. There were various magistrates, different smaller courts and, and superior courts, and each court knew what to deal with, what was their particular matter of expertise that they were the ones who handled. Only the tougher legal questions that had to ascend to the Supreme Court justice, only those, you know, maybe those that, 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 were, that were appealed had to actually come to Moshe Rabbeinu's desk. And so, my friends, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro's advice, is what Moshe listened to. We'll be right back in just a moment. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. And so, my friends, as we've been discussing, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro, travels from Midian to visit Moshe and the Jewish people in the desert. And when he sees Moshe judge the people all day long, he recommends this system that Moshe should institute a hierarchy of judges with Moshe at the top and the lower courts below. And Moshe listens to his father-in-law's advice. That's what we discussed so far. He appoints the various levels of judges and magistrates to help bear the burden of dealing with the various matters of litigation that the people had to follow. And now I want to try to discuss, to, to better understand the dialogue between Yisra and Masha. Let's go into the actual text of the Parsha and try to learn the lessons from it. You know, you observe the exchange between Masha and Yisra. And the obvious question is, what was Masha thinking? Did he really think he's able to judge the entire nation all by himself? Why was only Yisra able to come up with a simple suggestion of putting this hierarchical system in place? Is this not something Maisha himself could have, have come up with? Now, maybe they say for, there's an expression in Yiddish, Agast faravayal zeta famayal. You know, it often takes an outsider to set things straight, to see what's going on. Sometimes a business will spend years chasing its tail without generating a profit until an outside consultant walks in, takes one look at the place, and points out exactly what the problem is. You know, you can't sell fur hats in the Sahara. You won't have customers there. But while that might be common amongst inexperienced people who are in things over their heads, it's hard for me to believe that Moshe Rabbeinu, the great leader of the Jewish people, such a great Jewish leader and prophet, couldn't have figured out such a simple matter by himself. So what's really going on here, my friends? And so one of the great commentaries, the Shach, Sif Sekoyen, great famous rabbinic leader of a few hundred years ago, I want to share with you something he says. He says, neither God nor Aaron nor the 70 elders could have offered this solution to Moshe. Were God to suggest it, the Jewish people would begin to doubt Moshe's capabilities. Aaron was afraid to suggest it because, you know, what was it? Why exactly did Moshe not come up with this plan on his own? And so the Shach explains that the solution was obvious to everyone. But there was little anyone could or was willing to do. Yisra, an outsider, not bound by the unspoken social rules of the Jewish people, he could cut to the chase and address the issue. What exactly is the issue here? Why couldn't anyone else suggest it? So the Shach tells us that as an outsider, he was able to come in and, so to say, work things out and, so to say, acknowledge the enormous elephant in the room. But there's a little bit deeper of an aspect here than just what the Shach is explaining. I want to share it with you from a Hasidic perspective. And to do so, 
we'll have to visit another instance in which it seems that Moshe, so to say, completely misread the situation. And that was at the time the Torah was given. When the Torah recounts what happened at Sinai in our, in our parsha this week, it tells us as follows. All the people saw the voices and the torches and the sound of the shofar. And the smoking mountain. And the people saw. And they trembled and they stood from afar. And they said to Moshe, You speak to us. We'll listen to you, we'll hear your voice. We just can't handle this tremendous energy of God speaking. So Moshe said to the people, Don't fear. You know something? God has come in order to exalt you. In order that His awe should be upon you, upon your faces, so that you should not sin. That this is a divine revelation, an experience. And what happens is the people remain from afar. Moshe came close. It seems that the Jewish people, according to these verses, weren't able to handle the voice directly from God. So they wanted Moshe to be, so to say, that intermediary between them and Hashem. There's a very interesting medrash that discusses this. And it says, the voice of the first commandment was heard directly from God, and the heavens and earth quaked. The waters and rivers fled. The mountains and hills were moved. And all the trees, they prostrated. And all of Israel fell upon their faces. They, so to say, died. Their souls expired from them. And then the voice of the second commandment went forth. And they were revived. Special dew that will be used to revive the dead in the future. After the resurrection of the dead when Mashiach comes. And after that, the people just couldn't handle it. They said, we're unable to hear this great energy of Hashem's voice. Now, this is something based on the, the, the Gemara relates and the, and the Midrash. That the Jews only heard the first two commandments directly from God. The rest of the commandments they needed Moshe to convey. But this leads to a very famous statement of in, in the Gemara by Rabbi Simloi about the number of mitzvahs in the Torah. Says Rabbi Simloi as quoted in Gemara Masechet Makos. 613 mitzvahs were stated to Moshe in the Torah. 365 prohibitions, which corresponds to the numbers of the days in the solar year, and 248 positive mitzvahs corresponding to the number of a person's limbs. So 613 are the negative, the prohibitions, and that corresponds to the days of the solar year, and the 248 positive commandments corresponding to the number of a person's limbs. Zakhdi Gemara, Rav Amnuna said, Amar Rav Amnuna, Mai karatara tibalana mai shemarasha kilas yakov. What is the meaning of the verse that says, Maisha commanded us the Torah, which is an inheritance of the Jewish people. So Rav Hamnunas tells us, the gematria, the numerical value of the word Torah, 
is 611. You want to do the maths quickly? Tough is 400. Vav is 6. Reish is 200. So, so far we have 606. And Hay is 5. That's a total of 611. That's the number of mitzvahs that we received that were taught to us by Moshe Rabbeinu. On top of that are the two commandments we heard directly from Almighty God. I am the Lord your God. And the second one that you should have no other gods, those were heard directly from God Almighty. So between the 611, the numerical value of the word Torah, and that's how many we heard from Moshe, as well as the two that we heard from God, you have the numerical value of all the commandments, 613. So while the Jews found respite from the overpowering divine energy that they just couldn't handle, so Moshe Rabbeinu had to convey the rest of the commandments. It appears that Moshe himself wasn't too happy about this development. According to his plan, the Jews were supposed to hear every single mitzvah, everything directly from Almighty God. And the Jews' failure to live up to this plan was actually a source of disappointment, of frustration for Misha. And we see this from Misha's astonishment of the Jewish people as they prepared to enter the Holy Land. When they were 40 years later, finally entering the land of Israel, what happens? Moshe says to the Jewish people, I was distressed about you and you weakened me. I saw that you were not anxious to approach God to approach Hashem out of love as Rashi tells us there as the Jews are entering the land of Israel. Moshe's words. He says, would it not have been preferable for you to learn directly from the mouth of Almighty God rather than from me? So what's going on here? How did Moshe Rabbeinu miscalculate the capabilities of his people so egregiously? Couldn't he just see that they weren't cut out for such an intense divine revelation, such a strong godly energy? So we have to understand that it wasn't a mistake per se on Moshe's part. Rather, it was an ambitious goal that Moshe was seeking out. A goal that Moshe Rabbeinu, being the great leader who he was, was actually capable of pulling off. Ultimately, his plan was vetoed. Not because it was wrong or mistaken, but because a more important, more meaningful goal was what God really wanted. To understand that, we have to understand truly what the purpose of Moshe Rabbeinu, what does it mean to be a leader of the Jewish people? So before we go forward, just to recap a little bit of what we discussed, we asked why it was that Moshe didn't think of this idea in his own, why did Yisra, who had to come and suggest it, was this some kind of protocol that Moshe, that Aaron couldn't suggest, that God didn't instruct Moshe about? And we understand that through looking at the story of the revelation at Mount Sinai, which is also in our Parsha, we could get a better understanding 
of why this wasn't Moshe's ideal. Why Moshe judged all the people himself until Yisra's advice came along. And hopefully through this idea of why Moshe really preferred that the Jewish people hear that the Ten Commandments directly from God and his insistence on judging the people properly himself. If we can understand who Moshe Rabbeinu was, what his goals were for the Jewish people. Moshe was an incredible person. Isha the Keys described in the Torah as a man of God, one who literally saw God face to face, so to say. Like you and I see each other here, for those who are on Zoom with me now. Or like you understand ice cream. Moshe understood God. He got it. It clicked with him. When he received the Torah, the divine will and wisdom from God, it was on the loftiest level, pure, pristine, completely godly, untainted. And Moshe wanted the Jewish people to experience Torah and godliness the very same way that he experienced it. He wanted to lend them a window into the sublime reality of seeing God. So he figured they should experience the visual God themselves. They should be able to hear the commandments directly from Almighty the Abishter himself, without any intermediaries. Why get the second-hand version through me, Moshe thought, when you can get the real deal from God just as I see it? Now, of course, wondering, can the average Jew really get that real deal experience? The reality, as many of us can attest to, is that the average person simply isn't there. We're not able to see and hear God as Moshe did. So of course, it's no surprise that after hearing the first two commandments from God, such an intense divine energy, they just couldn't handle it. They couldn't take it anymore. So what was Moshe thinking then? Ah, so with that, I need to share with you an explanation from a modern Moshe from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe explains that Moshe knew good and well that the Jewish people were not exactly cut out for this level of divine cognizance. Naturally, the Jews standing on Mount Sinai could not see what Moshe saw. They couldn't survive to tell the tale and experience that divine revelation and energy. But Moshe also knew that he had the ability as their leader, as their faithful shepherd, to elevate them, to bring them up to that place by being in the presence of the Jewish people, by leading them in the proper path Moshe felt that he could take the Jewish people to that great level as their leader, that he could elevate them, that they could experience divine revelation, that they could recognize and, and, and relate to and, and experience God the way he did. And he believed that they were capable of reaching it. He didn't want to dismiss that opportunity for them. Yet Moshe wasn't ignoring the reality. He was looking towards a much greater goal that he felt as their leader they were capable of achieving. Now, he felt that that could become the reality even if it wasn't yet. Aim for the stars and reach the moon. So by foisting the Jewish people on his shoulders, as it were, he felt they too could see God, could learn the Torah directly from Hashem. And this, Moshe reasoned, was the best case scenario. 
He felt responsible to make it happen. He felt that they could achieve this. And that's why when they rejected it and asked him to serve as an intermediary, that's why he was so pained and disappointed. So of course the question is, why indeed did the Jews reject it? Who wouldn't want such an amazing experience? Why were they so overwhelmed to hear the commandments directly from God Almighty? Perhaps you could say, the Jews wanted to understand the Torah on their own merits, using their own capabilities. In other words, the experience of seeing things as Moshe did was truly valuable, it would be amazing. But how would it affect the Jew as a real person with real challenges and real limits? So after being taken by Maisha to the highest spiritual heights, what internal transformation would have taken place? An experience without process is sure to die, to fizzle out. In terms of growth, from a Hasidic perspective, the Rebbe tells us, that the Jews felt the bottom-up approach would be far more valuable. It would be wonderful if you're spoon-fed everything in life, if all your finances are taken care of. But what happens when you're left alone? So they appreciated the value of understanding the Torah and that great divine revelation. But what if they could wrap their own brains around it? even if that understanding would be more limited and not as great as Maishu Rabbeinu's appreciation of it. So though it may not be as romantic and as, it, and as divinely great as soaring to the greatest spiritual heights, but the only way you can internalize the Torah and be impacted and affected and changed by it personally is if you, if the Jew himself is invested in it. Let me read it to you in the words of the Rebbe himself. He says, but the Jewish people weren't satisfied with Moshe's level. They knew that their ability to learn Torah from God himself was only a credit to Moshe's efforts to uplift them. They really wished to absorb the Torah according to their own natural capabilities. And to this came God's response, that they have done well in all that they've spoken. God said, okay. Learn the Torah on your level, the way you understand it. By the way, that's the very meaning of the word Chabad. It's an acronym of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Das, understanding is that implementation, where you're going to make it real to yourself. And if you think about this, this is exactly what happens in a, in a similar dynamic that played itself out when the Torah was given. When Moshe approached the mighty task of teaching Torah to the Jewish people in a real way, implementing, making the laws real, part of life, Moshe figured, let the Jewish people experience the law in its most spiritual form, in the godly form it was originally crafted. And this, Moshe knew, could only be accomplished by himself. Only Moshe could serve as a direct conduit for God's words to reach each and every Jewish person. The Medrash tells us that God literally placed His word in Maisha's mouth. The Shechina Midaberas that the Divine Presence spoke through Maisha's throat. 
And so Moshe felt that he could be the exclusive channel for everything that the Jews would learn. To learn from any other person would give them a second hand, so to say, an inferior product. And Moshe felt that at the end of the day, he could lift the Jewish people up to that level. And he figured if the Jews were to receive everything from him directly, if he could be their judge, their leader, he could bring them up to a space where the Jews would indeed be ready and able to receive the divine lofty revelations. And that's why Moshe felt it's important that he had this personal relationship with every single Jew to bring them up to this great level because he alone would be able to judge the people and bring them up to the potential. Many great leaders are too busy to interact with a common person. Some are simply too busy to meet everyone who comes their way. Others prefer that exclusiveness that comes with a hierarchy. You know, here at Chabad House, in the earlier days when I arrived here, I'm already here over 13 years working in Chabad House and a few years before that as well. And I remember the secretary who was always wonderful, always refused to give people my number. She would always take messages and only when I came back to the office would I call the people back. And I said, personally, I prefer give them my cell phone number. Let them call me directly. But she says, no, that's not the correct protocol. You know, that's a certain level of hierarchy where certain executives prefer to have you call the secretary who will start scheduling meetings, make me sound as if I'm so much busier, it's impossible to fit anyone into my calendar, makes me feel important. And eventually they could get a meeting with me. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't like that hierarchical type of, of protocol. He felt that that whole chain of command wasn't necessary. He wanted to have a direct connection with each Jew. He felt that he could uplift each person in a way that nobody else could. And that's why he preferred to take up each and every single case that was brought his way. Even the most petty legal issues. He wanted to deal with all those faribbles on his own. To help each and every Jew sort out their personal and their halachic affairs and to be uplifted and become closer to God in the process because Moshe Rabbeinu was the conduit through which he was the, the leader, the personality that could bring them to that level. And that was Moshe's preference. That was the basis of Moshe's perspective on why he never, to begin with, wanted to delegate his responsibilities. Now, if Yisra said, why should you, the great leader, have to judge every little case? Moshe felt, it's my responsibility to be there for them. Because that is the job of a leader, to uplift the people like no one else can. What am I going to do? Give that to somebody less qualified than me to do? And if Yisra would say, but there isn't enough time in the day for one person to do the entire job himself. And Moshe Rabbeinu felt otherwise. When you're operating on this level, and then things are done, you could achieve. Moshe saw God, and saw the Torah, and saw the Halacha. He didn't have to spend hours breaking his head to get it. He felt that if he could have that personal interaction with each person, and they could get it just like he did, when every person sees the God, the reality, the truth, as Moshe saw it, then all the issues will be sorted out very quickly. 
perhaps more quickly than by this whole bloated justice system, the departments and different judicial courts and all. So Maisha, if you look at it from that perspective, it wasn't that he refused to delegate. He saw the advantage of not delegating. He had real grounded and practical reasons for judging the Jewish people all by himself. And it was all for the sake of elevating the people to a place that they couldn't reach on their own, that they couldn't reach otherwise. So if that's the case, then you have a good question. Why at the end of the day did Moshe listen to his father-in-law, to Yisrael? And why did God agree with it? If indeed Moshe's plan was to uplift, to elevate the people this way. Now yes, Moshe could uplift the people like nobody else could. But the day would come when Moshe would no longer be there to actually personally nurture them. What would be then? And Yisra therefore cautioned them that without the infrastructure, without the training of a hierarchy system of judges under him, if he wouldn't delegate those responsibilities to others, then the whole system could collapse. And that's not something that Moshe wanted to happen. Of course, from Moshe's perspective, ideally the people would be at such a high great level that that wouldn't happen. But ultimately, Moshe agreed. The reality was that the people perhaps weren't on that level. And so, Moshe, yes, he inspired the Jewish people. And he tried to reveal that inner idealism which he felt would ultimately be the best, what's best for them. When you're on such a spiritual high, it doesn't matter. But there had to be a process which the later leaders would gain experience from Maisha. That's process of delegation. And therefore the traditions would be able to pass on from generation to generation. When Maisha would no longer be there and the people's issues and legal disputes wouldn't magically just melt away. There had to be someone, people who were trained to know how to handle the situation. And dealing with the issues in this less magical way is so important. And therefore, Moshe felt that I guess this was the next best way. Moshe's method was to uplift and to educate the people by just being in his presence. But the other way to uplift a person is to let them be themselves. To look at their own ego and their narcissism and their shortcomings in the face. And after an honest reckoning and realizing on our own where our shortcomings and failures and areas are, that we could pull ourselves out of the mud, out of the quagmire, step by step and to grow and to become better. And that's where the hierarchy system of judges comes into the picture. Their job was to address the day-to-day challenges without magic. Not by osmosis, but by grit. Working together with each and every issue. And they help their charges overcome the problems in the natural process of hard, laborious work. So true, compared to Maisha's dramatic effect on a person, the effect of the lower-level judge, <laughs> it's incomparable. And that's why it wasn't his first option. But Yisra showed Moshe that when the people can be themselves with a little bit of guidance, that they were capable 
that they could work on themselves from the bottom up. And that, Maisha felt, ultimately was the second best option. And that's the real way to get godliness. Not by osmosis, not by magically it, the work done for you. Not by someone taking you on a spiritual joyride. But by you doing the work yourself. By you affecting real change. And only then does it really, really last. And so my friends, that was Moshe's greatness. Was one where he could have elevated the people to that level. And that was his ideal. But Yisra said that that system might not be sustainable. What's going to happen when Moshe Rabbein is no longer there? And therefore it was necessary to establish a system of judges who could help the Jewish people and address their issues naturally, step by step. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman. Great to have you with us today. And so as we were discussing the Rebbe, who is a modern-day Jewish leader, he explains the practical application of this judicial hierarchy. Like Maisha, the Rebbe wanted to be as accessible as possible. Anyone could write to him. Anyone could visit him. And thousands and thousands of letters came pouring into his office, and the Rebbe would reply. Hours and hours of his precious time were spent listening and addressing challenges big and small from young to old, from all sorts of Jews and non-Jews alike. And there's videos and there's testimonies and there's all the evidence in modern times. And the Rebbe would have private audiences with people. You didn't need to be a big rabbi or an important figure to visit him. Just sign up and take your place in line. Ask any question. The Rebbe had the time for you. And when there were just too many people, the Rebbe didn't delegate it to somebody else. He came up with another system. In the 1980s, the Rebbe started a system of the dollar line, where he gave you a dollar and a bracha, and every person came by and had a few seconds to be with him. From Sunday morning throughout the day, anyone could come by and have that precious moment. And I've had that privilege many, many times up until nearly my bar mitzvah. And he wouldn't leave the, his place until every person who wanted to had the opportunity to come by and receive their dollar and their blessing, young and old alike, anyone in between, didn't matter, man, woman, Jew, non-Jew. And for so many people, those moments were transformational. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, the Rebbe, a Moshe of our time, uplifted people in that way, just being in his presence, people felt they were uplifted by him. Many have told of simply leaving the Rebbe's presence and feeling uplifted. They felt just so much better about their situation, about whatever matters were troubling, whatever was bothering them. Just being in the Rebbe's presence could inspire and lift a person above their challenges. Yet, as much as that was the case, the Rebbe did not leave it alone. He also delegated that job to his shluchim around the world. And that's why you have thousands of Chabad houses. And in the later years of the Rebbe's life, he had a whole campaign encouraging people, you should have a mentor, every person, and every mentor should have a mentor. So, to conclude, where do we start? 
When we look at ourselves, we don't necessarily see who we really are. We have an excuse, we have explanations, we have justifications for all of our failings, for all of our problems. Thank God we love ourselves well enough that we're able to cover up all our shortcomings. But in that cozy position of, that that cozy cushion of self-protection, what impetus can there really be for us to ever really change? What happens? Let, I know there are people who wake up every morning and make it to the gym, but there are others if they had a personal trainer, if they had somebody to go with them, I think they would be probably a little bit more successful at their exercise regimens. Let me share with you a little insight from the Gemara. There's a, there's a Talmudic, very, very beginning of, of Masachat Brachas. Our sages talk about this. Let me read it to you. Rabbi Chia Bar Abba Chalash. The, Torah, the Gemara relates that the great sage Rabbi Chia Bar Abba fell ill and Rabbi Yochanan went in to visit him. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, are your sufferings welcome to you? Rabbi Chanina Bar Abba replied, neither they nor their reward. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, give me your hand. Rabbi Chanina Bar Abba gave him his hand and Rabbi Yochanan healed him. This is a story in the Gemara. On another occasion, the Gemara says Rabbi Yochanan fell ill and Rabbi Hanina went to visit him. Rabbi Hanina said to Rabbi Yochanan, are your sufferings welcome to you? Rabbi Yochanan replied, neither they nor the reward. You know, so to say, it's like, I don't need the bees, nor their honey, nor their sting, right? So Rabbi Hanina said, give me your hand and he healed him. Now the Gemara asks, why could Rabbi Yochanan not have healed him himself? So they replied, aim... A prisoner cannot free himself from jail. What the Gemara is telling us is, this is so true on so many levels. It's true in a physical sense, and even more so on a psychological sense. We're prisoners of ourselves, whether we like it or not. So when we want to, without being taken on a spiritual flight by a Maisha Rabbeinu, we can't free ourselves from our laziness, from our resentments, from our egos. What guarantee is there that we'll head in the right direction? How are we supposed to know that we're not just simply blinded by our own perceptions? And so, as it says in Perki Havas, the importance of having a Rav, a mentor, a teacher, a guide, somebody to help us through our difficulties. And that's why the Mishnah tells us, I say Lecharab, every one of us must have a mentor, a fellow human being, in whom we can confide and discuss important matters in our lives. The value of that confidant is not that he is smarter than you. That's not the point. We all need that outside trusted voice, that Yisra who was able to advise and so that when we are stuck in our situation, when we are in the issue, the, the, the difficulty, the challenge itself, and we have our own issues and concerns and questions, we could have a sounding board. Somebody who hears us and somebody who cares for us, who's able to relate to our issue and to listen with two ears, not for to go one ear out the other, to listen to us, one mouth. And then give the feedback and discuss. And I think that 
this idea. It was a bakasha nafshis of the Rebbe before his passing. A personal, heartfelt plea and request of his chassidim. He knew the day would come, obviously, as a mortal human being, when he would no longer physically still be here. But he wanted, and I think this applies to all of us, yeah, the day will come, we don't know when it will come. And therefore, we have to share, we have to know what to put in place. And therefore, it doesn't matter who the person is. You know Aleph, teach Aleph. Be a mentor and have a mentor. That's what we need. And that's so important that we have somebody who we can, who we can consult with and people we could counsel to. Like Moshe Rabbeinu. The Rebbe wanted for us the system and therefore he created this hierarchy system of mentors. And in Hasidic parlance, it's called a mashpia, a personal mentor, somebody who could help us think through and work on our challenges. And in turn, our mentor obviously should have their mentor so that every person could buy into this system and each person has the guidance that they need as well. So by having someone who you feel you could relate to and talk to and understands you and appreciates you, uh, a, a true friend, someone who genuinely cares for you, and you could be there for others, whether it's a child or grandchild, a friend or an adopted one, whoever it is, be there for them. Let's try to, like we discussed, Maisha wanted to uplift every person. And ultimately and ideally, that would have been great. But he accepted his father-in-law's advice, realizing that when he's no longer there, at least the people will know the right way. And we'll be able to identify and sort out their challenges. The best way to do so, of course, is one when one has a mentor. And in this way, together, we could achieve real improvement, transformation, fixing the entire world. We're going to get ready for its ultimate healing, for true redemption. Any questions? Thank you all for joining us here today on Soul to Soul. Wishing you a pleasant day, a fabulous Shabbos. Carpe diem.